0: This is Channel 7's Eyewitness News with Judd Hambrick, John Schubeck, and the Eyewitness News team.
1: Good evening. I'm Judd Hambrick. Here's what's happening at 11 o'clock. The gunfire has stopped and the flames are out, but a big question mark still hangs over South Central Los Angeles at this very moment. A question as large and perhaps as tragic as any on the West Coast in the last 103 days is the body of Patty Hurst among the five found early tonight in a shot-up, burned-out home on 54th and Compton Avenues.
0: Ron, Osserai, and Russiate Spoonbills. You're welcome for that one, by the way. It is me again, Christian Huey, your host for the podcast you're listening to presently. All you ever think about is Sparks, the only and therefore best podcast about the band Sparks. In case you missed it, March 10 was Equator Day. I hope you spent it trying but failing to meet up with a loved one because your directions were too vague. After which, of course, I hope both of you enjoyed a hearty laugh over the shared joke. Yet another new song dripped down from this Sparks camp in the last couple of weeks as we count down to the release of Sparks album number 472, or somewhere thereabouts. A steady drip, drip, drip. This new track is called I'm Toast. It's a chunky rock number with a cool, throbby synth in the low end. Like Please Don't Fuck Up My World, which was released at the end of last year, there's some real angst and paranoia about the dystopian future we all live in today. Russell even begs his Amazon Alexa to quote, Get me out of this place. Here is I'm Toast.
1: All the right, Same as it was, has the words that slip, then a further dip, then a rapid slide, am I still alive? I was there for you,
0: Again, that new album, A Steady Drip Drip Drip, is available May 15. Hopefully, this pesky virus that's turned our lives upside down here in the year 2020 will be better contained so that we can all enjoy a nice trip to our nearest record store on that day. If not, well, being that it is 2020, you can still download the digital version from the relative safety and comfort of your own home and enjoy the listening experience with your favorite potted meat and the good wine you've decided to bust out because now is as good a time as any. Jokes aside, please do take care of yourself and your loved ones. Don't touch your face. Do wash your hands often. And if you can work from home, do it all the better if you can leave the work part out of the equation regardless at home at work at play i wish all of you and your loved ones good health now here's a podcast about the band sparks On February 4, 1974, 19-year-old Patty Hearst, granddaughter of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst, was kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley, California. It was a violent scene. An armed group of men and women knocked on the college sophomore's front door, burst in, beat up Hearst's boyfriend, and threw her in the back of a car and drove off the perpetrators soon revealed themselves to be the Symbionese Liberation Army, or SLA. Led by a hardened criminal named Donald DeFreeze, the SLA wanted nothing less than to incite a guerrilla war against the U.S. government and destroy what they called the Capitalist State. The story captured the attention of the entire country, and the saga would play itself out on American TV screens Throughout the rest of the decade. Grim as it sounds, kidnappings seemed to be in vogue in the 1970s. Another heiress named Leslie Whittle was abducted in Haile, England. German politician Peter Lorenz was nabbed in West Berlin. Former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro in Rome, Megumi Nakota in North Korea, and countless other high as well as low profile cases. Stories of abductions kept TV viewers glued to their sets, readers to their newspapers and magazines. What then were pop music record buyers supposed to think upon seeing stacks of 12 by 12 images of two men bound and gagged in the transom of a speedboat staring back at you in the store from among the other LPs in that store? It must have been a shock, or at least an attention-grabbing sight. This was the face of Sparks' second album for Island Records and the second for 1974. Released in November of that year, Propaganda had the unenviable task of following up one of the highest-selling albums of 1974 in the UK, the explosive Kimono My House. Ron Mayle had conceived the artwork with the help of photographer Monty Coles. Because the idea was to have the photo look indistinguishable from the true crime journals of the day, Cole's demanded verisimilitude from the male brothers. Ron and Russell were most assuredly bound as two kidnapping victims would have been, wrists and ankles secured fast and tied together at the waist back to back. The gags look uncomfortable, and they were designed to be. They're both wearing jumpers, a red one for Russell and blue for Ron. Ron's necktie, mostly covered by a sweater and designer sunglasses, suggests that he's the type of high roller who would be worth a nice ransom. You can see the two wakes behind the boat crisscross each other, and you get the impression of reckless speed. What you can't see is how freezing cold it was that day, just off the coast of Littlehampton, Sussex, and stormy. Ian Hampton, who was present for the shoot with the rest of the band, had this to say. The front cover wasn't so much fun as it was a really stormy day. The terror on the guys' faces is genuine. The image also helped cement the idea of Sparks the band as really being just Ron and Russell with the other musicians in strictly supporting roles. It helped to codify Sparks's visual iconography. Here's what writer John Savage said. You've got this bondage thing going on, and when you look at it, you are immediately drawn to the story. How did they get here? Who are these people? As with Kimono My House, the other band members do appear on the flip side, as do the band name and the album title. On the back, Ron and Russell are still trust together, but they have been thrown in the backseat of a car, which is... um, either a Humber or a you'll have to forgive me here, I've only seen it in print, Uh, the uh, car appears to be parked in a repair garage. There's someone looking under the hood of the car, or bonnet, if you will, and that person was road manager Richard Cobble, with his face obscured in the photo. The other three musicians are standing huddled beside the vehicle, conspiring about something clearly nefarious. Those three musicians this time around are Dinky Diamond back again for another round as Sparks's workhorse drummer, Ian Hampton on bass, replacing Martin Gordon, and Trevor White on guitar. Adrian Fisher, whose guitar work is all over propaganda, does not appear in the photo as he had left the band some weeks before. Whereas Kimono My House benefited from a gestation period of 18 months, propaganda was written, recorded, and mixed in just under three. But Ron and Russell had no plans to submit to the dreaded sophomore slump, and if anything, sought to be more ambitious with propaganda, not less. The album would be more complex and versatile than its predecessor. Ron spoke to Trouser Press in 1982 anything we did was going to be judged we went into the studio with a lot of songs but a bit scared we kept thinking about the beatles and their constant rise we tried to make propaganda a little more complex than kimono yet they weren't in the mood for a radical shakeup either propaganda was more in evolution than a change in direction russell said in 2008 Yet, Sparks were handicapped this time around by a weaker group dynamic, and it was an unavoidable result of Ron and Russell's own personnel decisions. The Kimono Band really worked together as a unit to synthesize everyone's talents into a larger whole. Martin Gordon, although the breadth of his talent was largely untapped, he showed himself to be an inventive musician and arranger and he and Adrian Fisher seemed to have an intuitive understanding of one another musically. Ian Hampton and Trevor White, who had both played together in Juke, didn't lack for musical skill, but the sense of a true group contribution was more or less absent in the recording for propaganda. Ron and Russell were essentially giving instructions to the others this time around. For his part, Ian Hampton had few complaints and credited producer Muff Winwood in part for the continuity of sound with Kimono. Propaganda was great fun. It was a great time, best of my life. It was a huge buzz learning the songs, fiddling around with them, changing them here or there. Muff was a great producer getting that amazing rock sound out of Sparks. These are instant records. It felt very rock and roll. Ron was starting to take seriously his newfound reputation as a gifted but eccentric songwriter, and this extended beyond the song's lyrics. He drafted up a set of musical guidelines that would steer the new songs in the direction of his new musical vision. In the very same spirit as Brian Eno's Oblique Strategies, which, by the way, for my money, I do believe Ron was familiar with at the time, Ron would hand out to each musician a copy of his rules for things to do, and more importantly, not do, while working out a new song. Primarily, he wanted musicians to avoid falling back onto what felt comfortable or natural, and at all costs, avoid the blues, like the plague. Ron titled his mini-treatise, Jam Proof Your Composition, and it read like this. Parentheses. It's the same old song, only shorter. And parentheses. Number one, avoid the key of E. Avoid the key of A. Number two, never use a major or minor when an augmented or diminished will do just as well. Number three, experiment with arresting chord sequences. Surely there's been a chord sequence that you felt was maybe just a bit too kinky, a bit too complicated. Use it. Number four, never repeat anything. Number five, try adding a small 9, 11, or 13 randomly after a few chords in the song. Six, save your cleverest lyrics for those long passages in one chord. Seven, a good rule of thumb is when a solo soon will grate, modulate. Eight, when a solo does creep in, a gripping spoken part over the top can usually attract the lion's share of attention. Nine... Wherever possible, all solos should be restricted to the final passage of a song where they can be quickly and cleanly faded. Ten, reminder, it's never too late. One inch of splicing tape and a sharp razor blade can eliminate a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not sure if Adrian Fisher was around to receive Ron's uh, anti-blues, anti-jam edict, but if he was, I'm sure he would have quit the band all over again. Ultimately, the album that emerged from those intense and intensive several weeks shared roughly the same musical DNA as Kimono My House, with a couple of songs sounding like obvious sequels to tracks on Kimono My House. But there was less of the balls-out rock bombast and more, and you're going to hear me say this a lot in this episode, more of a Gilbert and Sullivan-style musical theater influence. Propaganda was less direct than Kimono, yet it was more playful and adventurous. Several of the songs take a few listens to fully reveal their charms, but the album was certainly not a letdown, at least not for most listeners. Peaking at number nine in the UK album charts, propaganda couldn't reach the dizzying heights of Kimono, but it was more than enough to keep sparks on the charts, on the telly, on the radio, and in the pages of those ever-fickle music magazines. Let's have a listen to Propaganda the album, shall we? Maybe Russell ended up staying the night in that cabaret in the song Equator from the end of Kimono My House, and he woke up refreshed but realized he was still all alone. Propaganda starts off with its eponymously named song as its opener, and it's just Russell by himself. I guess more accurately, it's a squad of Russells, introducing us to the album by way of a loony acapella jingle. Truthfully, Propaganda, the song, shouldn't be considered as a separate entity from the track that follows, without a break, At Home, At Work, At Play. Propaganda, the song, plus the zigzagging rock stomp of At Home, At Work, At Play, comprise perhaps the best one-two punch of the beginning of any Sparks album. As a musical statement of purpose, it ranks up there with 1979's Tryouts for the Human Race and 2002's The Rhythm Thief. The song Propaganda originally featured overlapping guitar parts by Adrian Fisher, but after Fisher's departure, Ron and Russell decided instead to add vocal layers from Russell and scrub many of the guitar tracks. That was a technique, by the way, that they would later employ to its logical extreme with the little Beethoven trilogy of albums in the 2000s, where songs would deploy entire armies of Russells, Sounding like a barbershop quartet singing a sea shanty, or maybe a lost song off HMS Pinafore, Half of our team of Russells sing the lyrics with a swooshing, dizzying speed and melody to match, while the other half punctuate with doo-wop like oo-oos and did it did it's for texture and rhythm. Hello, soldier boy, Russell begins, and you can already imagine him singing from the point of view of one of the geishas from the cover of Kimono My House to an American G.I. Oh boy, she's spewing out her propaganda. Propaganda. Might makes right, though you're wrong, you're right to fight her propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. Come to our side, she does say. Come on over, she does say. Well, I don't need more competition for her affection. You should fight on, fight on, over there. And the very next moment after Russell hits that high C with the word there, Adrian Fisher's guitar bursts forth from the speakers, along with Russell and whomever else is joining him, Singing the title of the next track, you can practically hear Sparks telling you, don't worry you guys, you can bet your ass that this will be a rock album. At home, at work, at play, sings Russell with each word couplet joined by two notes played simultaneously by each member of the band. It goes D sharp, up a half step to E, A sharp, up a half step to B, then repeat D sharp to E, but then up an octave for that last one. The notes make up a mode, maybe Ionian, I'm not sure exactly, but the combination of the unfriendly scale with Fisher's rude guitar bursts make for a disorienting and confrontational effect. The riff repeats a few times with each iteration faster than the last, like an anxious musical asymptote. The band freezes in place, hold, and then the delirious tension gives way to Dinky Diamond thumping out a mid-tempo 4-4 and the rest of the band following along. Russell chants nearly tunelessly but with a rhythmic vigor, I know you're unavailable from dusk to dawn, or if you were available, you'd bring along a lot of what could only be a hindrance to me. I ain't a glutton for a lot of sweaty company. Russell holds a high note on the last syllable of company, and then the song suspends in midair for the next segment, which has Ron's RMI keyboard supplying the fluffy clouds for Russell's angelic-sounding bridge. And then the band descends into a minor key boogie, and although it grooves, Dinky's cymbal-heavy playing adds a heavy metal thrash to the rest of the tune. Now, lyrically, Ron's going on about sex again but in his typically oblique, hyper-analyzed fashion. He has his straightforward moments. You've got to catch her while she's still at home. You've got to catch her while she's still at work. You've got to catch her while she's still at play, because half the day she's home, work or play. And then you have some unexpected tangents. And time is fleeing the scene of the crime, the act of passing out wrinkles and lines to every person, regardless of race, to every person, regardless of face, stop. There's going to be a million girls like her, though I can't think of one. Russell's sudden utterance of that stop Stop. at a few key moments in the song work is a kind of musical traffic light, alerting both the band and the listener that another whiplash-inducing change in the song's direction is about to come. The three minutes and 30 seconds that comprise the propaganda-slash-at-home-at-work-at-play mini-suite is a completely bonkers kickoff, For a sequel to a smash hit record, it's defiantly weird, utterly unpredictable, and a bit like a perfectly orchestrated train wreck. Sparks consciously chose not to lead the album with a presumptive hit single, and they appear to be warning return listeners not to expect any easy pleasures like This Town Ain't Big Enough for Both of Us. But, as we'll see, Propaganda offers some very different, but still very satisfying rewards, Of its own uh, from that of uh, Kimono My House. But first things first, here's propaganda and at home, at work, at play.
1: Such a royal boy, she's spewing out a propaganda Propaganda Might makes right that you're wrong, you're right to fight a propaganda 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 Come to our side, she does say, 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 say. Come on over, she does say. Say, say, say When I don't need more competition, more her affection You should fight on, fight on, over A million girls like her, girl. I can't think of one So you catch her while she's still at home, you catch her while she's still at work, you catch her while she's still at play, I'm gonna love you all.
0: Although it had very few pressings, there was a seven-inch single released for the two songs that were played together as one track um, on the same side of the record. Uh, mysteriously, the single for Propaganda slash At Home, At Work, At Play was only released in France, and it failed to chart. Its B-side was the same cut that was featured on the flip side of Propaganda's next single, which saw a wider release, Something for the Girl with Everything. That song was the jaunty Marry Me. Now, Marry Me may not have made it onto the album, but it's an affecting number with another one of Ron's hard luck, borderline delusional protagonists. Lyrical context suggests that this poor schmo is proposing marriage to a woman whom he's just met and could conceivably be a prostitute. And all the eager beaver men come wash away their blues. They place themselves in place of me and face to face with you. And each pretend you're loving him, but that's not very true, cause you're not acting. Nor am I, though I could use some proof. Musically, Marry Me is another example of that Pirates of Penzance-inspired direction. So many Sparks songs boasted during the propaganda sessions. It's jaunty, it's boisterous, it's boozy. Marry Me succeeds as a proud anthem for the lonely, desperate male Hornball who constantly pops up in Ron's cast of characters.
1: Someone to bring me out Someone to let me in Someone Someone And all the eager man and watch your way the blues They place themselves in place of me And face to face with you And each pretends you're loving him But that's not very true Cause you're not acting, nor am I Though I could do some proof Marry me, marry me What's the story? Though a thousand hungry people Tried to clash our story But no one in that darkened world need would ever know what I know Marry me A happily ever laughed it seemed too much to us With trees and tops of snickle walls And mountains in the back and longs that you are I can know And neighbours who will chat About important issues And the state of this and man Sorry. Larry me, Larry me, what's the story Though a thousand hundred people Tried to clash our stories
0: Back to the album proper. Track three on Propaganda is Reinforcements. It's a thrusting, slow-burning, pseudo-military march that begins with a peppy, clear-eyed verse from Russell and a bright, bouncy piano accompaniment from Ron. Sparks' flirtation with Gilbert and Sullivan-style show tunes on Propaganda really begins here with this song. I'm on guard again, but unprepared to fend for myself in a battle. You won't tell me why the shrubbery moves or why there always has to be subterfusion. You won't even say at ease after waging a costly siege. The military-themed lyrics about the narrator's experience being grossly underprepared for combat are matched musically by Dinky's steady marching rhythm. Unlike the preceding song, Reinforcements actually has a discernible chorus mostly revolving uh, around the song's title. Oh, and by the way, the very British-accented um, backup chants of Reinforcements uh, remind you of the very british of this iteration of Sparks. Like any good marching anthem, Reinforcements is very hard not to sing along to, especially after the middle eight. When the band cranks up the rock and Fisher's guitar really gives the song, as Ron himself would say, balls. Let's have a listen to reinforcements.
1: I'm on guard again, but unprepared to fend for myself in a battle. Why the shrubbery moves Why there always has to be a subterfuge? You won't even say at piece <laughs> I'm the wage in a costly steel When our potentate ain't so potent in the state
0: is bc now bc is not about the historical era before christ rather those initials stand for something much more personally meaningful to the narrator my name's aaron hers is betty our boy is a charlie so the neighbors sing hooray for abc abc forever each endeavor that i do i do to keep together a plus b plus c It's a cute and light-hearted beginning, but we soon find out that the B.C. parts of A.B.C. have flown the coop. And the poor father-slash-husband is left alone and bewildered. B.C., Betty, Betty, get back here. B.C., Charlie, Charlie, get back here. You're conveniently forgetting our little wedding, our honeymoon beside the sea. Like the song before it, B.C. is heavy on the pre-rock charms of, again, Gilbert and Sullivan, as well as Tin Pan Alley ragtime. Its quick tempo and Russell's giddy notes that flutter up and down the scale belie the song's morose sentiment, making this one of the few immediate pleasures on the album, even if, or uh, especially if, one has no idea what Russell's actually singing. Ron's weightless, carefree electric piano once again gets another starring role here, Uh, And yet again, Dinky's drums are keeping the beat to keep your toe tapping one moment, and then he's pounding aggressively in your eardrums the next. Ken Barnes of Rolling Stone said in 1975 that the song's musical fragments bounce around like ricocheting ball bearings. Well put. Here's B.C. Next is Thanks But No Thanks. In case the lyrics of BC didn't leave you feeling a little squeaky, the endearingly melodic Thanks But No Thanks is all about a young child dutifully, literally refusing to accept candy from strangers, even though the temptation is overpowering. Exactly why are all these adult weirdos grinning like hungry crocodiles and offering untold forbidden pleasures to our tiny protagonist? Thankfully, Ron Mail leaves that mystery where it belongs, and we can enjoy the easy melodies of his electric piano and Russell's incorruptible tenor. Until, of course, when the chorus kicks in. There we hear Russell emphatically, but politely pushing back against his would-be kidnappers. That point underlined by several steady hits onto Dinky's bass drum. Like countless other Spark songs, it's easy to go dozens of listens to Thanks But No Thanks and never absorb the actual lyrics. From Russell's opening line, just keep right on walking, delivered with gentle insouciance, to the Motown-like oohs and la-la-las, dreamily underpinning the main vocals, nothing about the music itself hints at the disturbing tension found in Ron Mayall's lyrics. In tweedy suits and pointy shoes, they offer me a ride in style, and something sweet to make me smile. I hate to hurt their feelings, so, but I'm supposed to tell them no. My parents say the world is cruel. I think that they prefer it cruel. Thanks, but no thanks anyway. I know that you're all okay, but my orders come from high above me, about a foot or two above me. Unusually for a spark song of this era, thinks But No Thanks is in no hurry to conclude, and it hangs around quite a bit past the four-minute mark. The band takes that last minute and a half of the track to build to a crescendo organically. The song gradually fades out, just as a disciplined, minimalist, really interesting and compelling two-note guitar solo from either Fisher or Trevor White, I'm not sure exactly, um, really gets cooking.
1: Just keep right on walking. Just keep right on walking.
0: Next song is Don't Leave Me Alone With Her, the traditional big rock number, The Close Outside A. Don't Leave Me Alone With Her picks up some of the same glam stop that was all over Kimono My House. The title may share a family resemblance to No More Mr. Nice Guys from the first Sparks album in 1971, but the lyrics take the toxic masculinity out of that song's protagonist and inverts it completely. Apparently one of Russell's favorite songs on the album, Don't Leave, has him pleading to his friends not to leave the party yet, lest he be trapped alone with a woman who's a known sexual predator. Unwitting chaperones, how come you cannot see? A Hitler wearing heels, a soft Simon Legree, a hun with honey skin, Desaad who makes good tea, don't leave me here to be, don't leave me here to be. And then the chorus, don't leave me alone with her. Well, that's Propaganda Side 1. Like I did with Kimono My House, I'll explore the second side in the next episode, and Side 2 should be just as much, if not even more fun, since oddly, both of the album's hit singles were sequenced onto that side of the record. Propaganda was indeed another hit record for Sparks in the UK, although it was incapable of reaching the dizzying heights of uh, the previous LP, Kimono My House. The reviews in the music press were largely positive, but less effusive than they were with Kimono. Martin Gordon, then an ex-member of Sparks, gave his decidedly critical impressions of the album from the perspective of an outsider looking in. I find all the things that began to irritate me. I can't hear unanimity. I can hear people doing what they're told. Ken Barnes of Rolling Stone was less dismissive, but had mixed feelings about the album overall. In some ways, Sparks seems one of the most fascinating bands of the 70s. In other ways, they're a difficult learning experience. Melody Maker was one of Propaganda's more enthusiastic supporters. The sound of Sparks is intriguing and imaginative. The band rely on dynamics and rhythm changes to carry their tunes rather than depend on one basic melody line. Propaganda reached ninth place in the U.K. album charts by early 1975. Four singles were eventually released, although two of those saw very limited releases in only one or two countries. Sparks promoted the new album with uh, many appearances on U.K. and European TV and would take another crack at the U.S. market with a stateside tour in early 1975. Thanks to the churn in the band's personnel, however, it was an open question for a while there exactly who would be sharing the stage with Ron and Russell Mail. More on all that next time, as well as the second half of Propaganda. Now, uh, stick around for an interview I'm really excited about. Mr. Martin Gordon, formerly of Sparks, Jet, Radio Stars, the Blue Meanies, and later... Okay, everybody, just stop. Stop the presses. Yeah, I was about to tell you that you're going to hear an amazing once-in-a-lifetime interview with Martin Gordon. But the fact is, it was such a great interview that we went on for like an hour, and I really do think that that interview merits its own episode. So, going to have to wait a couple of weeks to hear the interview with Martin Gordon, Uh, but um, in its place... I am going to play for you guys a 1974 interview with Ron and Russell that's mostly about food. Oh, don't forget to wash your hands, like a lot.
2: First question I'd like to ask you is a bit about your background, how you Uh. actually formed Sparks.
3: Well, uh, both of us are from Los Angeles in California in the good old USA, and we had been doing a lot of various projects we formed a band about five years ago in Los Angeles, and it was called Half Nelson at the time, and we, we had two albums out uh, on, a, on an American label. Russell, and did they sell? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, his records didn't sell at all. So we changed our name to Sparks. Thinking that we would sell more records Ask me if they sold. Russell, when we...
4: Did your name change do Sparks have an
3: effect on the uh, sales? Not at all. Oh. no, Still didn't sell. No. So we came to England. We came to your country yeah. and came out with a new album. Ask me what happened Russell, to the new album. When you moved to England, did, did yeah. the record sell? Yeah, sold. So there you go. In, in a nutshell, there's the history of Sparks. Uh,
2: have you been back to your homeland since you've achieved the success?
4: We, we have gone back, yes, and it's been very strange because we've gone back and we've, we've almost been tourists. What's That's Disneyland the, like? Oh, it's incredible. It's, it's, it's absolutely what, what heaven should be like, and I hope it is like it, except I hope that heaven's cheaper than Disneyland. <laughs> but but it, it's a really incredible place, and we really enjoyed it in Los
3: Angeles.
2: Do you think you'll stay in England? or?
3: Yeah, we'll, we'll more than likely continue to base ourselves here. We, we enjoy it.
2: Would you like to do a serious acting role?
3: Yeah, yeah something. And, a, and also an acting role
4: that, that didn't involve any, any music on our part. We'd like to really keep Sparks as a separate entity and then have a, an acting side hmm. as a separate entity and then our, our catering business is.
2: I'd like so to talk to you about your catering oh, business, oh, <laughs> actually. It brings me to my next question have. because you're writing a book, aren't you?
3: Yeah, originally we had a project um, to do an entire cookbook of yes. our favorite our favorite meals that we, we cook at home. And we found out that there were so many favorite meals and so many favorite after-meal treats that we decided to, to limit the book to just being uh, an after-meal sweet sort of book. Mm. With things like ice cream and chocolate and all, you can really make so many different variations and combinations and exciting different formulas with, with, with sweets.
2: Are you a good cook, Russell?
3: Um, no, but, but I continue to make things just because I, I really enjoy it.
2: Give us a quick recipe, Russell.
3: Which one should I give? How about uh, creme caramel? Oh, the creme caramel. Well, you go out and you buy about um, three or four pounds of, of caramel syrup stuff. I don't know mm. if they call that. The same if it's the same thing in England, and you buy just a big ton of it you pour it in a in a hot in a bowl
2: yeah.
3: well a pan actually you heat, you heat it up so it kind of starts gurgling a bit, then you add some milk to it and so that it starts making it a bit um a bit lighter because this stuff's really hard and sticky mm. and stuff, and you just kind of keep stirring it up till it gets really really, really mushy. then you take some chocolate about. It. About a pound of chocolate. This is this serves about forty to (laughs) fifty, so it's for it's for big parties. I wouldn't know how to make it just for myself. I only I only do do these dishes for forty or fifty people at a time, and you just mush the chocolate and the caramel and the milk all together in this boiled up sort of mess. And after a while, something magic happens, and you see that it's turned a hole in your table. (laughs) That's what happens. And you've got to go out, and you've got to find a new table by the time your 40 or 50 guests arrive. But also what happens, apart from burning a hole in your table, mm-hmm. is the chocolate rises. It ends up making three layers. Milk. This is a
4: record, so they're going to have a little trouble seeing your three layers.
3: But. Okay, this is important. This could be a two-record two set, yeah, just discussing yeah. how to make this one one creme caramel. It's very important. I hope this doesn't get You can try
4: pouring a little creme caramel on this record and seeing it
3: carry on. wait a minute i haven't finished yet <laughs> now you've got about two inches of chocolate at the top <laughs> of the pan the milk has separated and has gone into a middle layer
0: mm-hmm. and
3: the caramel has gone down to the bottom of the whole thing and it's really exciting because then you, you carve it up and your guests think that there's just going to be a chocolate blob. that all they're eating is chocolate and they go in and, and all the milk kind of <laughs> splurts out because that's still liquefied and then the Caramel's at the bottom still being really gooey.
2: Wonderful. It's really good. Apart from cooking, what other hobbies have you got?
4: I collect uh, postcards.
2: Do you? What sort po- of postcards?
4: Oh, anything with pictures on them, it doesn't matter. It's just postcards are really good picture postcards because it eliminates the need for writing anything. You can just send it and a person knows that you thought enough to buy a stamp and and it gives them a pretty picture and you don't have to go through all the the mess of writing how much you like the person, which is usually a lie anyway.
2: (laughs) Do you find that you differ a lot as brothers?
3: Uh, yeah. Very much so. He's got a mustache on his upper lip and I haven't got enough hair on my lip to grow one of those mustaches and he's got hair that goes back. I'd look ridiculous if I had slicked back hair, stuff like that. He's
4: sort of a vibrant bouncy type person and I'm He's a real
3: drip.
2: <laughs> How do you achieve the highly original sound that you've got?
4: Oh, um, well, I, I tend to write on the piano mostly using my right hand, which obviously plays on the higher end of the scale. We just leave it there, and, and he sings it, and it, it comes out really high.
2: How do you feel about that, though, Russell, singing that high? Oh,
3: it's 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 a painful experience, but, but. I put up for it because I like how it sounds in the end. And maybe sometime if his uh, hand would get run over by a train or something, his right hand, I would, the spark sound would be uh, altered drastically because then I, he'd have to write with his left hand and I'd be singing very Like you <laughs> see.
2: Is stuff. there anything you'd particularly like to do?
4: I've always seen these movies with, with uh, people going to Africa and becoming missionaries and all. But when I like to go... To an and civilize some people. If there are any people up to civilize, I could wear my cocky shorts and, and one of those hats and go down there and civilize some people. got one of those outfits, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I do. So.
3: I do.
2: <laughs> so you're dying to go somewhere to wear it?
4: Yeah, yeah that's what it is. Yeah,
3: mainly. He doesn't want to go to be to a wear missionary. The shorts here. <laughs> he just wants to wear the outfit. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sully.